So James chapter 4, we're in our series called Gospel on the Ground. We're looking at um, just how this reality, this truth of the gospel affects real life, our real faith, and how it plays out in real community in Christ. And so uh, let's go ahead and read verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's just pray one more time. God, thank you for your word. And um, just as we sang already this morning, I pray that uh, whatever new thing that's true to your word that you want to speak to us uh, today, you, you say in your word that, um, any scribe instructed in your kingdom brings out things both old and new. And so we pray for the, the, the old, sure truth to come out, and we pray for something new. In other words, write to us today specifically what you would have us to hear um, in this moment in our lives. Lord, we thank you that your word um, is able to do that. It's alive and active, and it peers right into us, and, and we need you, God. So um, we ask you to do that. Help me to speak. Help these guys listen and in a way that would be effective for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is quite a passage. Um, I think you may have noticed it begins with that phrase, uh, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. Now, have any of you ever had the problem with having quarrels and fights? I'm, I'm just curious this morning. Have you ever had this issue, right? Um, it, it's something that conflict kind of draws around every human being. It's a common experience we have. I mean, um, I'm, I'm going to throw my family under the bus a little bit. Um, I did text them and tell them that this morning. But I, we did this thing for uh, the kids growing up years where we did movie night on Friday night. And we uh, religiously, in such a way that if I ever changed it, they would get really, really angry. Um, and so, uh, but the problem was it was a great time. When we actually started the movie, we had lots of discussions, enjoyed good culture movies together, and some bad ones as well. Um, the, but the whole problem with that uh, issue growing up was that they would fight every single Friday night about the movie we were going to watch. And I don't know if any other parent has encountered that, but trying to, and then as they got older, like teens with like younger ones, it's like trying to get this one to watch something like um, Nemo, Finding Nemo or Canto or something like that, when this one wants to watch like Full Metal Jacket, I guess it's like, <laughs> that doesn't really go together. So we experienced lots of like quarrels and fights, and, and to be honest, it still happens today. I mean, just being real, uh, we'll get in a fight on movie night of what we're going to watch. Um, and those are 
illegitimate fights, right? There are legitimate fights we can have in this world that, that there are things worth fighting over, but then there's illegitimate flight, fights because they come from a selfish preoccupation with what we want. And we are in this series in James, and, and what we're doing is we're taking a look at from chapter 3 today, how it flows out of this pure, peaceable wisdom of God. And it seems kind of abrupt and kind of goes into this statement of quarreling and fighting. And it seems like, well, this is a, a shift in gears. But it's not really because what James wants to do is he wants to contrast this source, this fountain of wisdom that God has given that's pure, peaceable, willing to yield, all these wonderful things, further with what he already said was a unspiritual kind of like earthly wisdom that is full of selfish ambition, envy, etc. And so that's what he's doing. And, and I think James overall is this book of wisdom. And I, and I want to just camp on this idea of quarreling that he brings up here in the verse, first verse a little bit with some Proverbs. So um, just to get this into real life. Okay, so Proverbs 26.1. Um, maybe you've heard this before. It says, as charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. So there's a picture. It's like a guy just always wants to fight and just everywhere you go, there's like a little fire breaking out. Okay, James has already told us in, in James 3 that the tongue is like a fire, right? So just imagine this guy like fire breaking out all over us. And some of us men sadly can be like that. And it's just like you want to debate, you want to fight, you want to argue, and it's always your way or no way at all. And there's Proverbs 25, 24. I apologize for bringing this up, but it says it's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with the quarrelsome wife. Okay. Sorry, ladies, it's in the Bible, like it's there. And the reality is like, this is a quite a picture that, you know, guys, I hope you've never actually had to hide in your attic, but this is what the Proverbs is painting for us, that quarreling can be such a way from one spouse to another that it can make you really wanna hide. Um, The last one, Proverbs 18, 18, it says, the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. And, And this is just acknowledging that, Quarrels are so common among us as human beings that it's like sometimes you really don't know what to do, okay? Have you ever been in that position where it's like, I don't really know how to solve this argument? I mean, I find myself in a relationship like that, and and I'm just like, God, I don't know how to solve this. And the proverb writer is just like, well, get the dice, throw them out there, flip the coin, whatever happens, like, hey, that solves the quarrel. That's what we've got to do because we've come to nothing else. If nothing else, like when you have kids, it's like rock, paper, scissors. Like, what is it? Like, you get the movie, that's the way it is. So this concept of quarreling connects with all of us in real life in some way or the other. You came in this morning, and I guarantee almost 100% that this week you experienced some sort of quarrel or conflict with some other human being. Okay, can I get an amen, right? Is that true? You're like, no, I don't want to say that, but (laughs) they're sitting next to me. Um, But you, you have experienced that, or in the past you have, certainly. And so James wants to help us as he helped these original believers in this context, which, by the way, is a, a very broad concept. They're Jewish believers scattered out throughout um, the dispersion, so to speak. And he's, what, he, what he's doing is not to one particular place. So it does apply to believers broadly, this book and this chapter. It's very helpful that way because it's not localized to Corinth or Galatia or anything like that. And, and what he wants to do is help them do and have what 
he mentions in verse 18 of chapter 3. He says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So Tucker did a great job of mentioning the source and the substance of wisdom, this fountain As I said before, a pure fountain that is the wisdom of God and a bitter kind of poisoned fountain that is the wisdom of man. Now James kind of switches some of those metaphors and says there's fruit. There's a harvest that's going to come. And that harvest of peace is this fruit on a tree that you're going to see from what is at the root. And so, you know, look... Whatever you, this is just a good principle for us, by the way, that whatever you're experiencing in life right now, if it's anger or depression or anxiety, I mean, some of these things, by the way, are clinical. We're not going to talk about that, but whatever you're experiencing at the, the, the fruit level of your life, this harvest you have, quarrels, fights, peace, whatever that is, that's just the fruit of what's in your heart. That's what the Bible says, and that's what James is getting at here. He's trying to help us to see that any experience with conflict with other people comes from a place that's embedded deep within us. And and let's take a look at what that is. So we'll just go to verse 2 and 3. It says, you desire, and go back to verse 1 again. It says, what causes these quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? And it says, you desire and don't have, so you murder, you covet, can't obtain, you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You don't ask because you receive and because, or, and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so here's what James is saying. The reason you have conflict with people is because you have passions that, you ha- that are unresolved that you, must, you think in your mind you must have in your heart. You, I have to have this passion, Okay. And this word passion is very interesting here. It's the word hedonai, which means literally where we get our word hedonism or hedonistic pleasure. It's the pleasures that we want, okay? But I, I, I want to camp on this idea of pleasure for a minute when we, when we start today because, uh, and, and that's the first thing. This message I'm calling the cure for common worldliness. And I want to define worldliness in a little bit and talk about that. But uh, th- I want to talk about pleasure first because I think that the cure for commonly worldliness starts with a pursuit of the right pleasures. Okay, because these believers are pursuing all the wrong pleasures. I mean, they're doing, they're prideful. They're doing what C.S. Lewis says in this quote. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. The believers, we've seen already in the context of the book of James, like they're fighting over who's suffering and who's not, who's rich and who's poor, who, what ethnic groups really. There's, there's this underlying theme, like there's this polarization in the community, and because of all of that, they have this conflict. And what James wants to say is like you can grow this way. There's this way you can go into um, this passionate pursuit of your own pleasures, your own desires, and that will lead somewhere. And then you can go to another place pursuing God and his goodness, and that leads somewhere else. So if you read this, this is why I want to camp on this. If you read this, initially you could think what some have thought, and that is that the God of the Bible is against pleasure. 
Okay, you could think like, okay, well, certainly the God of the Bible wants us to sit. I love that Parker did that with the youth group. It's like, are we going to, at the youth camp, just sit there in a room and read the Bible all day? Of course not. That would be a horrible youth camp. But um, look, you could read this and you could wrongly take this to mean that God is against pleasure. Okay, Um, but that's not what James is doing. He's trying to show us that there are two ways to take our pleasure. There's a right way to enjoy pleasure and a wrong way to enjoy pleasure. Okay, so uh, in in reality, um, it's not pleasure that's the problem in and of itself. It's the experience of it. So I had the opportunity this week, and I just want to kind of try to illustrate this. I had the opportunity to go up skiing to Bogus Basin. Okay, how many of you guys have been skiing? Anyone? Okay, snowboarding maybe. That's better for some of you. But got a chance to go up there. Beautiful weather, beautiful day, and honestly, it was just absolutely amazing. I also had the opportunity to go out to dinner with some friends this week, uh, you know, the other night, and just have great Mexican food and just enjoy time together. And I'll be honest, as I was doing both of those things and I had this passage on my mind, I was thinking, like, I feel kind of guilty (laughs) because, like, I'm experiencing so much pleasure here. Uh, I'm experiencing this reality of uh, skiing, snowboarding, and I'm, I'm experiencing this reality of good food, good friends, good time together. That is the legalistic aesthetic part of me that was, was feeling guilty. It's not from the Lord. And, and so one experience I had as I was skiing, I went down this one run and just long, smooth cuts and just like beautiful snow just kicking up. And honestly, I just was just like, I shouted. I'm just like, thank you, God. Like I was just so amazed at how wonderful what I was experiencing was. So I was experiencing that and, and, and just reveling in uh, the beauty and the magnificent time I was enjoying. And same thing with the food and friends. That is not what James is talking about. In fact, what he's saying to these believers is you have taken the pleasures of God that he's given you and you've turned them to your own use and your own ways. Okay, James and the Bible in general would want us to feel a thankfulness, a gladness, a gratitude for the pleasures that we get to experience. In fact, that's the right use of pleasure. That's what God wants for us. God created pleasure. So here's another quote from C.S. Lewis in a book called The Screwtape Letters. He says this. It's a demon speaking to another demon about human beings. He says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal form and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's God's ground. He, God, made the pleasure. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage humans to take the pleasures which our enemy, God, has produced. And at times or in ways or in degrees which God has forbidden, that's what we need to do. So, Satan's strategy, according to C.S. Lewis in this book, is to get us to pervert and co-opt the pleasures that God gives us and use them in a way or have a wrong relationship or wrong attitude to them. And that's what I'm talking about this morning. And that, that There's two ways. There's a wrong pursuit of pleasure and a right pursuit of pleasure. The right pursuit is one where you're growing constantly and thanking God. I mean, um, I don't know your experience in life, but I have been in various places in the world and in places in the world where even getting a shower is not something that's a common experience. And through that, 
I, I really have uh, I experienced this again just the other day. And, and on a regular basis, when I sit there and I turn on the shower, the hot water starts flowing. And I'm just like, this is a spa day. This is like luxury beyond imagination. And every single day you get to experience that. You get to enjoy that gift. And the right response would be one of gratitude and thank yous and happiness and joy. And we just like, you know, turn on the shower and just get ready for work. I mean, it's, it, it, we, the, the problem is we feel entitled. See, the people that James is writing to clearly feel that it's their right to have the pleasures and the passions that they want as in opposition to the people around them. And that's where the quarrels come from. I mean, I mean, think about it. Some people are never satisfied with what they receive in life. They can't be satisfied with what they get. They can't be satisfied with anybody else being blessed. And that is the attitude of this section of Scripture. Everyone receives these common pleasures, these graces from God. Everyone gets this. And, and, and there's one attitude that gives thanks, and the other attitude is one where you say, I'm at the center of the universe. Unless I get exactly everything that I want, I will not be happy. But we already know that that doesn't happen because even when you get all that you want, like Solomon, the man who experienced all the pleasure possible, the greatest king, the richest king, the wisest king, you're still not happy. So, pursue, the cure for worldliness, first of all, is to pursue pleasure in the right way, right? Don't view God like um, uh, Adam and Eve were lied to by the devil in the garden where he says, like, God is holding back on you. He doesn't want you to enjoy good. He's holding back. He doesn't want you to be like him. No, no, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Well, let's, let's look at the next thing. Verse 4, it says this. You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So here we have this concept. The, the second point I'm going to say is that we first um, pursue passions the right way, pleasure the right way. Second, we're going to pursue friendship with God. And in this, what I want to do this morning is define this idea that James talks about here of the world a little bit and worldliness. You guys have been around church for a while, right? You've heard that term worldly or worldliness or, or they're of the world, we're in the world, whatever it may be. Um, and I think that there's a lot of confusion with this concept. And because of that, there's been even fighting within the church about like, what is worldly? How should we experience life? And that's exactly what we want to look at today. So first of all, let's look at some definitions to this. The first definition that uh, I, I looked up just merely in the dictionary is this, the quality of being experienced and sophisticated. So I, I really don't feel like that's getting at it because like, is there anything inherently wrong with being experienced and sophisticated? Like, I like to drink my fizzy European water. Like, there's no problem with that. It's, I, I pretend I'm sophisticated by doing so. It's at Costco. You can get it there. Um, so it's not that sophisticated. But nonetheless, there's nothing wrong with being, like, ex experienced in life and, and, and somewhat sophisticated if you are that. That's fine. Second definition is this. A concern with material values or ordinary life rather than spiritual existence. Okay, and I think this is where most Christians, well, many Christians would land, right? That worldly is real life, physical life, just kind of the things and the stuff of, of normal life. And not worldly is 
spiritual. Prayer, Bible reading, uh, fellowship, things like that. Many Christians would put this, I believe, false dichotomy and say that like everyday life is not that spiritual um, or it can't be or shouldn't be or we shouldn't engage in certain things. And we get traditions that maybe some people would call fundamentalists that they would just basically be those who would define pleasures, I think, as that which you should run from. I think that's a bad definition of being worldly. Uh, and, and the problem with that definition is that it's uh, somewhat culturally conditioned. So I, I'm going to take a risk here this morning and, and give some examples that relate to me. I, like, I lived in Europe and England for 14 years. Some, some people like, think that's great. Some people hate that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but all I'll say is this, that when I moved there and started doing church and doing life with people, sometimes after church, I noticed that people would be like, hey, let's go down to the pub and have a drink. I mean, I was just like, what are you talking about? This is absolutely crazy that, like, people, like, we're, we're Christians. And at the time, I mean, I was a teetotaler for, uh, like, a, a good decade or more. And it's like, I was just shocked that people could do this and be, be called Christians, right? I mean, I, was, I had this kind of definition of worldliness. That's not spiritual. That's not right. That's pleasurable in a wrong way, et cetera. And maybe, and look, I do not want to debate this right now, but I'm just saying, like, that was my experience. But I saw some really, really godly, amazing people who did that. And it didn't affect their life. And in fact, I'd say that they overall in that country, amongst Christians anyway, have a lower addiction rate to alcohol and less problems in some ways. Um, trust me, there's still problems, but nonetheless, uh, not here to, to argue for that this morning. I'm just saying that that's, that can be culturally conditioned. It's like the German lady who's crying and upset because the American Christian is judging her for drinking beer, but she's judging the American for going to bowling alleys and watching movies. Right? I mean, there's just things that we, that if we define worldliness the wrong way and say it's about the material things, then we're going to get there. We're going to argue, we're going to dispute, we're going to fight, and we're going to say, my passion's not bad, your passion's bad, your passion's not bad, my, you know, and, and it's just going to be that way. So, I think, lastly, there's a better definition. And it's this. A system of ethics, worldliness is a system of ethics and philosophy built up in opposition to God, his revelation, and his kingly authority. God, his revelation, and his kingly authority. You see, James is saying that there is an entire system, and he'll, he'll, we talked about this last week, that the triad against Christian growth is the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's not so much that Christians need to go out of the world and stop experiencing passions and pleasures. Jesus said that in John 17. He said, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. I pray that you sanctify them in the world, that you send them into the world. That's Jesus' desire. It's not so much that we need to be out of the world. It's that we have to have the right pursuit of pleasure, and we also have to have the right motivation, and that is a pursuit of friendship with God. Because the Bible says, how can two walk together unless they're agreed? So for you, for example, maybe you couldn't walk into the pub with an English Christian. That's totally fine. That's a culturally conditioned thing. But when it comes to, are we walking with God? Are we going in the same direction of God? Do we love the Lord Jesus Christ together? That's where we have to be sure. We have to be uh, 100% in agreement that what we're doing is for God's glory. 
And James wants to kind of emphasize this by giving a couple more relational analogies. And that's what he did in verse 4. He called them adulterous people. And he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Okay, so this is harsh language. Uh, maybe you're not used to like, you come to church, welcome, we're glad to have you here. You're adulterous people. I mean, that just kind of can seem kind of rude. But like, I mean, the Bible does do this. It paints the picture in the Old Testament, especially the narrative is one that as God created the whole world and gave his gifts and gave his blessings and, and, and poured out his grace upon us, that what we did is we, we, we went out on God. Like if you've ever watched some of those like shows where they interview like the cheater and all this kind of stuff or I mean if, sadly if that's ever been done to you, you know the pain and the hurt from that. It's the worst thing that could happen. And yet the Bible paints this picture that that's what's been going on for a millennium from God to mankind. That he is in one sense a jilted lover. Not jilted in the sense of he's not capable of receiving love and, and that he's not fine within himself. But he's jilted in the sense that he has given all and we have turned our backs on him. He's given promises, we've broken the promises. He said, I marry you, here's my vows. We've said, no thank you, I've got another spouse. And then there's this concept of friendship as well. I mean, hopefully all of us can see like, Man, when I am going after my own passions and pleasures for my own selfish purposes, perverting the gifts of God, that makes me kind of spiritually going out on God. That's bad. But here, here's another thing that I want to point to, and this gets more to the relational heart. It says, like, God is um, wanting friendship with us. Now, friendship is a hard thing for us to kind of uh, acknowledge, I think, in some ways now. Like, uh, we are so inundated. I think I have... Um, you know, I don't know, like a few hundred or something friends on Facebook, which is, I know is an old person saying Instagram, whatever else, like it's fine. But um, like I've got a few hundred friends and, but, but here's the thing, they're not really my friends. I mean, if you're on there, I'm sorry, but like we're not really <laughs> friends the way the first century would define it. Okay, so think First century, you've got like a village of people. They've been there for years. They've got grandparents and they've got parents and the communities are integrated and there's real history and richness and story that's there and everyone knows each other fairly deeply. I mean, here it's like someone comes up, you're like, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? I saw you, uh, you know, you're, you're going with your wife to this date and it's like, oh my gosh. Well, first of all, you have to ask the question, why did I post that? Second of all, it's like, they don't really know you. I mean, what we do in this world today is more like stalking than it is friendship. So I, I think we don't really know in our casual acquaintances what friendship really is. Friendship is something that is a deep, rich, communal experience with people in such a way that you have rich history and commitment. And it's kind of exclusive, right? It's the opposite of like the spread it all out there in, the, in our modern culture. Um, God wants deep, exclusive friendship with you. And what this passage is showing us is God's heart because he is saying, in response to you going out on me, in response to you betraying me, spurning me, not liking me, 
expressing your desires for all the things that I don't like. And who wants to be friends with someone if you don't like any of the things that you like, right? It's like that, that sometimes is the, the problem in Christian community. It's like, well, they don't really like this and I don't really like this. But, but we have Christ in common. But nonetheless, it's like how, who wants to be friends with someone that doesn't like anything that you like? That's just boring and kind of annoying, actually. But yet God's response here is this. I still want to be faithful and know you and pour into your life, and I'm still there. It says, not only does he want to be your friend, but he yearns jealously because of the spirit that he's put in you. This is the great truth of the reality of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling spirit of God is that if you're a believer in Christ, that God has put his spirit in you. And in putting his spirit in you, there is this seed of this wisdom that's peaceable and pure. There is also this kingdom, um, just, uh, just total transformation to where like at the heart of who you are, you really don't want just your own passions. You want what God wants. And so what God wants to do is not like a lover that says, I need you, but he wants to say, as a lover who loves you and wants the best for you, wants to see you flourish and wants to see you grow, I want jealously you to experience all that I have for you. It's not that God is insecure like we can be or that he fears you not responding to his friendship. That's what we can be like. It's that God is really for you. Um, One pastor said it this way. He said, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife, a queen. His jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation at having his honor and power and mercy scorned by the faithlessness of a fickle spouse. So God has saved you, has loved you, has befriended you. Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves or servants, but friends. He, he's done all this for you so that he could just do good to you. He's truly the best friend. And that is God's response. God's response to us going out is, I'm going to give more grace. I'm going to give more grace. So if you hear this morning these terms like, man, coveting, fighting, quarreling, not praying or praying wrongly, these are all things that I've done. I mean, when you hear these terms, when you think about the, the, the motif of adulterous relationships or uh, uh, betraying friendship, all these things, and you're just like, man, I'm feeling absolutely horrible about what I've done, or at least I should, then the answer and the response from God is like, hey, there's more grace I'm going to pour upon you. I know exactly why you're doing what you're doing. I know where you've been. I know what you've experienced. I know why you're fighting and why you're angry more so than you know why. I know the passions you're pursuing. I know all of that. And guess what? I'm going to give you more grace. I'm going to give you more grace. You would think if it were down to us that God would cast us off but he doesn't. God is never done with any human being until the day that they die. If you are feeling this morning like God is done with you, I just want to encourage you, that's not true. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, God gives more grace. So, pursue friendship with God because that is the best thing that you could have. Look, 
You could lose all your passions, you could lose all your pursuits, all your pleasures, but if you have the friendship of the Almighty God with you, then nothing, nothing, nothing could ever take away uh, anything from you in this life. I, I don't know what your year's been like, or your two years if we go back to the COVID era. Um, but some of us have had a hard time. We've lost spouses, we've lost jobs, we've lost finances. We've lost friendships. We've lost many, many things. And if those passions are where life ends, I'm telling you, that is all there is and that's it, then you're ruined. But if, as the Bible says here, there is a God who is pursuing friendship with you, wants to walk with you, wants to be with you, no matter what you do is there for you, then there is something more. So to cure your worldly heart, to cure pursuing other passions in life, know the friendship of God. Okay, last point, and that is this. Um, look at verses 6 to 8. It says, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So... Pursue pleasure the right way. Pursue friendship with God because he's the only thing that will last. And then finally, pursue humility. Okay, pursue humility. That's his prescription for dealing with our hearts and its wrong passions and worldliness. Wanting the things that God doesn't want. And it's expressed in three different ways. It's expressed in three key points. I'm going to mention that, but first of all, Look at what Charles Spurgeon had to say about humility. He says this, he said, humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. Okay? That's what it means. Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. The problem with the believers that he's speaking to, that James is speaking to, is that they were thinking too highly of themselves. The rich over the poor, we saw that. The teachers over the congregation, we saw that. We saw all of these things. There's fighting, quarreling, because everyone is estimating themselves to be higher than they should be. And that's our core problem. Pride is the mother of sins. And, and so we tend to think that we are worth, or, or we, we are not worth more, but we, we should have more than we have in many passions that we have. And so he says, humble yourself before God. So how do you do that? Three ways. First of all, submit to God, resist the devil, and then draw near to God. Okay, so submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. Let me kind of wrap this up by saying this. Um, humility is expressed in submission. Humility is expressed in submission. In fact, it's impossible for humility to be expressed almost in any other way. If Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of the fear of God. If you say this morning, like, I'm a Christian, I submit to God. There's no way for me to tell that unless I see you submit in community with other people. Okay, in other words, like, um, if I don't see, if you're a kid here this morning, I don't see you submit to your parents, then I don't know that you submit to God. If I don't see husbands and wives submitting to one another, I don't see that you can submit to God. If I don't see um, believers together putting aside their differences and saying, I'll submit to your preferences, I'll submit to your culture, I'll submit to, then I don't see us submitting to God. 
I don't see humility. If I don't see people submitting to, uh, in the right way, whether it be uh, church authority or to governmental authority, I see people with the same mixed up passion that the believers in, in this book had. Believers that are rebellious and not humble, who think that we get to interpret reality rather than coming under God's reality. So who do you submit to? That's my question. Who do you let go and say, you know what? I I don't need to be in control. I don't need to be in charge. I don't need to, I don't need any of that. I'm going to submit to Christ. Second, resist the devil and he'll flee. Um, I'm not going to get into this. This could be a whole sermon, of course, on how to resist the devil. Um, But I will say this, that um, you see this later It says in verse 11 and 12 that it says, don't speak against one another, brothers. Don't speak evil against one another. Um, In community, humility is expressed by resisting the devil as he tempts us to vaunt ourselves over one another. Uh, I had a situation this past week where I had a conversation with some friends and, and with one person in particular where I totally misinterpreted what they were saying. Has that ever happened to anybody here? Like I totally misinterpreted it and I responded a certain way because I misinterpreted what they were saying. And thankfully it didn't turn into a big deal, but I just, I felt kind of like, I just felt off about it. And as I was like going on with the rest of my day, you know, we talked a few times, everything was fine on one level, but I just felt this constant kind of like, you know, thought, you know, I probably should check in with them. I should probably just go and say, hey, you know, apologize. I didn't mean anything by that or let's clarify that. And so all day long, just kind of felt that way. Finally at nighttime, just, you know what, I got to give this person a call. And so I called them, spent some time talking for a few minutes. I'm so thankful I did because that act of God, gra- God gracing me with the ability to pursue humility broke down a lie as we talked. It was like things going through our heads And that's the enemy. The devil wants to bring this division and this fighting and this quarreling. And so by God's grace, that little step of uh, God-given humility that I was able to pursue helped to bring a situation out of the realm where the devil can lie and and, and just can convince people uh, of the uh, evilness of the other person and actually brought into, uh, into truth rather than his lies. So last thing, draw near to God. Draw near to God. Um, let me ask you a question. How do you read the Bible? Okay, how do you read the Bible? How do, you, do you read the Bible as like a rule book, as something you need to go to and just kind of get the right living in place? Like a checkbox, okay? I suggest that what this passage says when it says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you, is that you should read the Bible as this love story from God to you that. He is saying to you, I am for you 100%. Come to me. Come to me. Draw near to me. Um, Why do you think it is that these believers could not pray and prayed only for the things that their passions were taking them into the wrong places? It's because they didn't think they could come to God. They didn't think they could come to God. Uh, I want to say this morning that um, the greatest lie of the enemy is that um, there is a roadblock between you and God that still exists. I want to point you to the book of Philippians, and I want to read to you what Jesus has done 
turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, or look it up here on the screen. This is, this is describing the God that is the real God in this real world. I just want to remind us of this. If God is calling us to be humble, to draw near to him, it's because first he has done that himself. Philippians 2, 5 to 7, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what I want to say is that Jesus, in his humility, he, he didn't view equality with God something to be grasped. See, we're grasping at Godhood with our passions. We're wanting to be king in authority. We're wanting everyone to do it our way. We're wanting that. Jesus, he is the king. And he humbled himself and just walked into this world, took on the lowliest position. Think right now about the, the person that you esteem as the lowliest in vocation or personality or whatever else comes to your mind. And, and Jesus took that on. And he came and he said, like, I'm just here to serve. I'm here to um, get at the root problem of this humanity that is infighting and quarreling all the time. And I'm going to do that by just laying down my body as a sacrifice even to show that I don't have anything to prove, that I, 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 I can humble myself and my passion is the love I have for these people. And in doing so, his death on the cross means that his presence is open to everyone who would call upon his name. Mark 15, 37, 38, I love this picture that I'm sure we've all heard before. It says, Jesus uttered a loud cry on the cross and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That signifies that the holiest place that was the presence of God is now open to the outer court of the Gentiles, to you and to me, to all of us, forever. If you take what the Bible just said in James about what human beings are to be true, this is miraculous that God would open his presence up and say, come near. My, my prayer today is that pursuing humility as we see the humility of Christ would cure our worldliness because we would understand that God is so gracious, we have nothing to prove, that God is so glorious, we have no one to fear, that he's taking care of all of our sin and shame on the cross and we can just come to him. What would it be like if today, I mean, seriously, we have to ask this question. We, we did this recently at our men's reset event where we said like, when's the last time you just took 10 minutes, half an hour, and just sat quietly before God and said, God, I want to come near to you. Would you show me, Spirit, whatever you want to show me through your word, by your spirit. When's the last time you did that? Maybe today would be a good time to start just drawing near to God with all your emotions, with all your problems, with all your fights, with all your quarrels. Just come to God and say, like, here it all is, God. 
You know it all. You're still my friend, and I come to you with it. Like a lot of the problems and a lot of the anxieties and a lot of the things that we are working through would be healed, would be cured. A lot of the ways that we pervert those passions would be tamed because we come to the God that that, that loves us. And here's the great news, and I'll I'll finish with this. Um, In doing so, in coming to God, the gospel says that we get all the things that people grapple for and just grab for that this world wants. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, As it's written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. C.S. Lewis, I think, captured this, and he said this, We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday vacation at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. All of us are fighting today in some way to get the pleasures that we think we need in this world to get friendships we think will satisfy us or relationships that we think will be good for us to lift ourselves up and all I'm saying today is the cure for that worldliness in our heart is to take the pleasures of God and experience them to know his friendship is secured and also to Pursue humility and give up your rights as Jesus did. And then you'll experience more and more the pleasure of God given to you because Jesus died, he rose again, God exalted him to the highest place. And for all of us, we have nothing to grasp for because if we died in Christ, we'll be raised with Christ. We are raised with Christ and we will be raised with Christ. And it's all ours anyway in him.